Big Gym Show is sponsored by Maul and Brawl. Maul and Brawl is the best men's skin and beard care products on the market right now. Maybe. How do I know? Because it's mine. 100% owned by me. Tried and tested by me. Whether you've been mauling in the office or brawling in your bed, Maul and Brawl is for you. We've got a shower gel which is scented dark honey and tobacco. The moisturiser has a scent of ivory musk and the beard oil will make your beard feel smooth and silky and smelling like whiskey. It comes in three packages. The Simple Man, which is the shower gel. The Modern Man, which is the shower gel and the moisturiser. Or the Caveman, which is the shower gel, moisturiser and beard oil. To order, go to maulandbrawl.com and type in the code BIGGYM10 for 10% off. Maul and Brawl. For men. That maul. Big Jim is wearing his heels. Do you know, I'm probably the shortest guy to ever play second row in National 2. What was your club at National 2? Give me a shout Reading Enzians. I had a bit of a, an epiphany to move to Australia when I was 27. And it involved a big, big bumper cat a minute festival in Croatia. We have a very warped kind of relationship with food, but people think we're broken. We're not. We're completely fine. The environment is what's fucked. So many people almost lack desperation. They create an environment that is void of desperation. And because of that, they never get the elixir of motivation they need to actually work harder. If you think the algorithm's giving you a tough time, you just need to make better content. Mm. Because every algorithm on every social media platform is designed to get you a billion views. And it will give you a billion views if you make the content good enough. On this episode, I'm joined by a social media sensation. He's a lot more than that. He is an online PT, he's a podcaster, he's an author, and he's a bit of a stand-up comedian as well. It's the wonderful James Smith. Let's just talk about your mate. What's his name? Diren. 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 Yeah, so he, um, I got the Sire House membership, just wanted one, tried everything, couldn't get it because I was, you know, this riffraff, whatever. But when I was living in London, it's cheaper than getting a gym membership. So if you live anywhere near White City and it's got that amazing gym in it. It's a great gym. So like you you pay, call it what, £150 mm. a month for a membership. David Lloyd's more expensive. So then you can use them in Farmhouse, Istanbul, New York, LA, whatever. It's a bit of a no-brainer. Now he's got one. Now he's a bit of a wanker, but he unfollowed you, did he? He followed me for a bit when I saw him in the street and we looked at each other and he did the old onto his tiptoes, shoulders back bit of an alpha move i mean i was 37 so i was still a young bull and then followed me followed him back and then that was it unfollowed me so i unfollowed him the way it goes you know i think that's a reflection of where he's at in his life not not you and i don't mm. think you should take that too personally maybe it's the podcast thing because it was in another studio mm. and how nice is this by the way we were talking about the spotify mm. studio we'll get you in here but this is incredible. i felt very uh out of place coming in here it's very professional very nice mm. you know the i did podcast this morning in just a little a little room in White City. Now, probably shouldn't have even done it. Should have saved myself for this production roundtable. How are you with the podcast? Because I said there's like that awkward meet at the beginning, unless you know someone. And I feel like I know you loosely because we've followed each other, listened to you. But I've kept it a bit, not awkward, but you keeping won't. it raw. Whenever the conversation starts getting flowing, I'm you like- just <laughs> shut me down. He, Stop. He said, shut up. 
before coming in. Shut your mouth. No, it's good. You need to do that. Like, um, I often, I try and do the same. I'm like, just get, just get in front of a mic. Three, two, one. I like shocking the people when they come mm. on. Three, two, one, back in the room, let's go. And then, yeah. Because otherwise you talk, talk shit to fill the void. Well, normally, and I won't do it this time because I've told you, but I'll either say to the producer, press play, but don't tell my guest I'm pressing play. And then at the end of the show, not to Judas to them, but just keep it rolling. Mm. It's, it's, it's weird in a way. And I suppose in the UK, there's a big shift now towards podcasts and media. The Americans just fucking go full hammer. Say what they want, do what they want, no airs or graces. Maybe that's because of the podcast and the reason they do the podcast is because they can do that. But there's a sh- bit of a shift and you're in the podcast space as well, but still quite rigid when you interview people or not quite transactional. It can be It can be quite difficult. You're lucky because you're in, well, you're in the UK. Very flattered you came from Edinburgh, by the way. I don't think I'd come from Edinburgh to London to see me. Yeah, but mate, this is podcasting big guest well i appreciate it and the fact you flew to stansted mm. tells me a lot that's commitment that's probably more of a commitment than coming from edinburgh it's a horror uh well we live and we learn a bit like everyone should go to luton airport once and no more than once i tweeted about that once hands down the worst airport i'd say in the world and i've been to nairobi which i mean if you've not been i don't want to be horrible to kenya it's a beautiful place but the airport ain't good but i'd say luton hands down not even close the worst Got airport a, got a first story for you rugby as well so uh you should always love playing rugby on the seventh circuit and being a forward i just made sure that every time i caught the ball i'd pass it because there's nothing worse than having a, i'm that anti-gas very very slow i just love the breakdown power you're yeah. about row right yeah so i just like getting my hands on the ball you know causing mischief in a line out no athletic nothing athletic apart from a bit of what some people could call mong strength now Playing sevens, I was the backs used to like me because I was a catch and passer. You know, there's nothing better than having a fly off go get Smithy in the front row. You know, still catch and pass, he won't hog it. And um, so there was this tournament, maybe quite must be like ten years ago, and the idea was to do four tournaments, but the winner of the tournament was whoever won all four. So the teams would go to all of them. So the first one was in London. We went. There was maybe like ten teams. The next leg was in uh, Milan. And Milan was super hot, went there and we joined like another sevens tournament. So even though there were like 30 other teams, the four teams that were part of this tournament that went, they were participating and whoever did best, it would like play into that league structure we had. Milan was ridiculous. And when we got there, we realized the coach who had made this whole tournament to cut costs, he was like, our lads bring sleeping bags. I was like, it's 45 degrees, no way. We get there and it was just like a TP tent, nothing like on grass. Two, two teams in this teepee and I was like, where are we going to stay? So we got shit-faced. We ended up breaking into an athletics track next to it and stealing the high jump mats and putting them into our tent to sleep on. And Milan was just raucous, crazy. We had to dress up as women one night and we're just wearing dresses with no underwear. It was a pretty wild night. But after that, we knew this guy was a bit of a cheapskate. So there was another tournament that was in Belgium, but the last one was in Iceland. And we go to Iceland and... At this point, all four teams know each other now because we've been at three tournaments together. So we all lock eyes at Gatwick and we're like, let's get pissed. We got so boozed that we had all our alcohol confiscated on the flight, but you got four sevens rugby teams that know each other on a flight. By the end of it, the air stewardesses were like, come to the back of the plane, we'll let you drink, but you're just being too rowdy. When we get to Iceland, the sun is still setting at 11.30 p.m. And it doesn't really set, it just sunset and then gets light again. We all went out. And had probably the wildest night ever because when we got there, there was a campsite and he didn't even have accommodation for us. It was just a campsite. So we're like, fuck this guy's cutting costs. We'll go out. Pulled pretty much an all-nighter. I had to fake a concussion in the first game so I could not play. (laughs) 
But then the coach drops on us the next day. He's like, oh, well, lads, Saturday's the big night. I expect none of you will want to go to bed. So I didn't get you any accommodation. So we've hit the wrong night too early. But the worst part is we party all night. And then without sleeping, it's like 6 a.m. We start going to the airport. He's booked us all onto different flights. I didn't realize until we came into land that I was going to Luton. My car was at Gatwick. It was the worst. Like, can you imagine being hungover, coming back from a rugby tour, and you're just thinking the whole flight, I'm going to get home, get my car, go home. Luton. Horror. But I can't even go home from Luton. My car's in Gatwick. It's not even in London. It's called London Luton, and it's nowhere near. It's like Milton Keynes. Exactly. Horror. It's a horrible place. Who's this coach? What's his name? Let's call him out. The absolute legend. Chris Calloway. (laughs) Is that his name? I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive him. But to be fair, like, uh, yeah, we, we, we were a pretty raucous team. You ever been to Bournemouth Sevens? I have, yeah. I've been down there once. I'm not a festival. I'm a big man, right? And mm. I'm not, I need a, I need some kind of toilet facilities. That's it. That's all I ask. I'm a toilet snob. Yeah. And do you know what? Later in life, I'm definitely there. Mm. But Bournemouth Sevens was beautiful. 270 teams. The, the last time I played there, netball teams, dodgeball. And like, Whenever you go to a festival, the crowd's always a little bit, oof. but when it's the values of like rugby players, netball players, you kind of like got 10,000 people that are all pretty sound. And that to me, I know the owner of Bournemouth Sevens, he'll be frothing that I'm bigging it Dodge. up on this. Dodge, I, will, I, Dodge I, will be there. He always, yeah. he always WhatsApps me to promote stuff. I, mean, I haven't spoken to him in two years, but um, yeah, he's done something great there and I've had some fun there. But you, you know, even Haskell's DJing there now. See that a couple of years ago? Yeah. I've never heard him DJ. What's it like? <laughs> well, I'm sure it's good. He's got a weird old hand. I mean, again, I'm not a qualified critic around DJs and stuff like that, but it is funny when you see him going DJ and he's posting the pictures from behind. He's got his bent fingers pointing that way and you zoom in to the crowd and you're like, hang on, these are 13, 14 year old kids. <laughs> this is a school disco. What the fuck's going on? John, I'm a I'm big fan of James Haskell. I've never actually met him in person. Have you not met him? No, I've been on his pod. I think he's swerving me ever since I was on Joe Marler's pod. And I said, all my years playing rugby, I was called a poor man's James Haskell. And then I said, James Haskell's a poor man's James Smith. Then he went radio silence. Tables have turned. He's a good lad, Hask. Yeah, I, hey, kind, I, mean- I kind of would love to see him on the smash as well so me and Hass go back a long long way so back in the day when i was english in the academies together when we were growing up so it was there was like a leicester contingent so myself name dropping here you might know a few the listeners would definitely know them all so myself harry ellis ollie smith from the kind of leicester side i've, I've watched all of you play rugby i'm a big rugby yeah, fan yeah i know but i just played it down a bit humble oh, so we okay. had them lads and then there was like james simpson daniel from gloucester and then you had the Wasps crew, and Hass was part of that with Danny Cipriani. We were in this academy together. So there was always a bit of beef between Leicester and Wasps, and then I chose to play for Scotland. Because you had that big, uh, what was it, Delalio, Martin Corey. And Martin Johnson then. So then that was it. And then we, when we were in the England camp as kids, we kind of took it there because that's what the fucking legends did. And then when I decided to play for Scotland, he used to abuse me because he thought I was English. And then we had a big fight he was playing for Stade Francais I was playing for Edinburgh Mickey Mouse game I had a big dust up in the tunnel and I was all right at grabbing and stuff like that but he's hit me with an absolute blinder to the point where it spilled into the change room so there was a little bit of history there but all fine lovely sweetheart of a bloke you know always not always second guessing himself just he's doing so much isn't he I don't know well, similar to you like, I don't know how how he does all that I don't know how he's got the bandwidth but what we're saying so he's a 
a poor man's James Smith, but before... I'm just saying, I said that to Joe Marler to make him laugh. And I think ever since then, you know, I need to make more of an effort. But let me tell you what, there's there's one person, and I'm sorry that it may not be yourself, but there was one person in the rugby world that I just said to myself, if I ever meet him, I'll never be chill. And it was Sam Burgess. And when I met him in Australia, he had no idea who I was, what I did, whatever. My first thing I said to him, I went, I'm your biggest fan. And Ant Middleton introduced us. So I, I just went, I'm your biggest fan. Mm. Like, I frothed over that guy for years. Nails. Like watching the Slamming Simon documentary, mm. like I was invested. And I was like, big, massive fan, loved his stuff, all of that. And uh, I wasn't drinking. I had about six months off drinking because I was, I was trying a bit of a loose year. I needed to get my life back in order. And I've been, I took Ant for dinner and he was having beers. I was like, I'm not drinking. I'm turning the corner in my life. I look at Sam. He goes, I could have a tequila. <laughs> and it well, was straight like, off the bat. Yeah, like we just went, we went to like a bar and I went, if you have one, I'll have one. I broke six months of sobriety. I was going to try and do a year, but it's Sam Burgess. Oh, well. And he's he's a legend, like such a nice guy. He had no idea who I was. Super nice, super polite. Such a like charismatic, big character. Incredible rugby player. Such a big fan. There was like a lot of press in Australia trying to really go after him. I think he's come out of it the other side. But what's annoying is they dragged his name through the mud. And then when he came out and he's vindicated, no one wants to talk about mm. it. And uh, yeah, that was that was the one time that I was literally like, I remember when I was younger, maybe when I was like 17, I met Lewis Moody at a dinner. And like, you know, you're like, wow, these people exist in real life. They're always bigger. Mm. And I expect, that's why I never played for England because I didn't have the height. Do you know, I'm probably the shortest guy to ever play second row in National 2. Or National Rugby. What, what, what was your club at National 2? Give me a shout Reading out. Endians. I thought, I thought it was a, were you not a Roslyn or something? No, I was at Maidenhead for a few years. We went to Nat 3 mm-hmm. and then didn't want to go semi-pro, so we got smashed and lost every game 70-0. Then I went to Reading Endians in Reading and they were Nat 2. And to be honest, that level of rugby was like incredible. Everything like a playbook. Super enjoyed it. But I had a bit of a, an epiphany to move to Australia when I was 27. And it involved a big, big bumper get a minute festival in Croatia. And I know it's got a negative connotation, but like ketamine, helping people with depression, you get it on prescription. Clarity. And in America, you get it on prescription, right? Nasal yeah. spray. Like, you know, it's actually doing stellar things to people. They're doing guided therapy now with ketamine infusions. I pretty much took myself through therapy at a festival. And um, yeah, because <laughs> because of that, I decided to go to Australia because of that experience, because of it. But yeah, so I remember one night, this is it, Red Agensians, I was at rugby training and I kind of had this thought in my mind from this ketamine trip. I was like, I should really go to Australia. I should really do this. Oh, I'm playing rugby. Oh, you know, I've just been selected three weekends of very first team grade, national two. And I lifted this lad in the line out and he came down and his stud landed on my big toe. I'm done. That was my last training session ever. I'll never forget. You know how much it hurts when someone's heel stud goes into your toe? No one sees it. There's probably not even going to be a bruise, but for that next 30 seconds, nothing hurts more. And I thought, I'm getting out of here. I'm, I'm telling you now, and I've had many injuries, dislocated ankles, nearly lost my eye playing, broken ribs, sternum was sore. I was actually mm. chatting to my mate about it. I broke my sternum. That was fucking sore. Being stood on the toe and the toe swelling up is one of the, if not the most uncomfortable things I remember taking a load of diazepam and stuff like that to try and sleep. And the missus said, I'm up 
out of bed downstairs in the cupboard with a drill trying to Oh, when you go through the top of it trying to go through like she's like what are you doing the fuck it was one of the, I was all over the place on Dazapan that's a sore in, that, that's enough to put any man and like you, I, I remember getting to a like a to a doctor at A and E, and I was like, I've hurt my toe. They're like, oh, the nurse is mm. rolling their eyes. They don't get it. They get that hot pen mm. to put through the top, but the release is like an orgasm in the foot, mm. right? Uh, and then I remember I had that done, but then the nail was a bit loose, and I went to A and E, and I was like, oh, can you glue it down? And the nurse just pulled it off. She mm. gave me the local anaesthetic bomb, pulled the toenail off, but it's fine. I was back to kicking duties. I was obviously never kicking in rugby, but here's something: I played back row and second row. I just loved going for a nudge with my mate at the park. Secretly, deep down, I think I should have been a fly-off. Well, you're an all-rounder. Like, if you th- even think in them things. I can't pass off my left hand that well, but that's just another thing. Mm. That could be my idiosyncrasy as a, as a fly-off. But I spent more time practicing my kicking and rugby, and I'd never kicked in my position. So, you know, this is a shout-out to all the props and locks and back rowers out there who... Our fly half stuck in forwards bodies. Yeah, the top end of the game is changing though, in terms of the size and the power. Well, you would have seen if you've with Joe Marler, the size of him, and if you're watching it now, like Genji would be one of the ultimate athletes, I'd say, around in professional sport. They're freaks. Oh. But like um the this interesting when we look at when we look at the size of I think it was like uh, maybe ten years ago, the England under eighteens were bigger than the World Cup winning squad, mm. pound for pound, which is frightening. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. What do you think of rugby now when you look at it? So from you've played grassroots, you've gone off and done incredibly well away from whatever you wanted to do and being a professional rugby player for England, if that was a dream. When you look at it now, have you seen any growth? Do you think, because I'll say why, just to give a bit of context, the listeners will know. And we've been talking about it on the Rugby Podity with Goody and the guests that we've had in here about the state of the game. You've been in Australia there's different issues. NRL is absolutely flying, by the way. But when you're looking at the game, have you got any opinions? Does it bother you? Well, one thing that I hold dear is I'm one of the most things I'm most grateful for is that I wasn't better at rugby. If I was 30%, 40% better, I would have never lived my life. I would have been in, let's say, some of my friends got national one contracts, championship contracts, like national two, high level, and getting 200 quid a week playing. They, they actually call it the region beta paradox. Chris Williamson taught me this, where imagine you've got to get somewhere in London, miss a mile away, you'd walk. But if it's two miles away, you'll get the tube. So paradoxically, you'd get there quicker if it was further away. So for some people, their situation isn't bad enough to take action. So you've got a lot of people, actually a lot of my uni friends, they got contracts for these kind of middle tier clubs that pays just enough. 
that they can't pursue their ambitions. And because of that, next thing you know, they're 32, maybe swapping around clubs or whatever. And say that when they hit 40, they're going to then have to get just a normal job. They never quite made it. Even there's a lot of people at the championship. In the championship, you're so close to Prem. Oh, it's the, it is literally the carrot in front of the donkey. I think that analogy was made for the rugby players in the championship. And it's just, it's so close, but yet so far. And at the time, I remember thinking, 30 grand a year to do what you love, that's amazing. But then you get to the real world, then you look at house prices, mortgages, interest rates, and you're like, I'm so glad that I got on with my life at 24. And just, I remember doing one one season at Cinderford in that one. And it was the best thing ever because I realised I wasn't as good at rugby as I thought. And that's it's a fair realisation. I mean, I played college rugby. I was like captain in my school, captain in my college. Then I was like, I'm going to go to Hartbury College. Similar to why I went to Australia. I was like, let's go to the epicentre of where things are good. See how good you really are. Went to Hartbury. They're like, you can try out for the third team. I was like, hardest game of my life. Got smashed. Then when I played for Cinderford, back row, I remember getting bumped by a scrum off. And I mean, probably one of the most violent bumps I've ever had in my whole rugby life. It is tough rugby up there. Yeah, we played some Welsh Prem lads in the Premiership um, in the warm-up games. And I was like, oh, I just don't I'm, I was hoping I'd be picked for the seconds. You know, like, so then looking back at rugby now, it was something that was so amazing for me for so many years. But I'm glad that I never went further. I'm glad that I never played at a high level. I'm glad I wasn't better in some respects. I think that it can be like a masquerade for getting on with your life especially if you don't make it the top levels there is some notion that the game's gone soft and every time i see something about a red card on youtube i'm like watching into it some of it i'm like yeah some of it i'm like nah but i spent a bit of time with dylan hartley in dubai when i was last there like the head impacts the trauma the state steve thompson people like this it's very concerning and i think that there definitely has to be some really strong support structures in place to protect people's heads when they can it almost feels like the there's so much uh, polarization now to the game, the laws are going soft. I think the referees are doing their bit, but at the same time, you're really disgruntling the audience by, yeah, shoulder to the head, fine. But was it intentional? Absolutely not. You can't be red carding people for that. Like in my day, red cards were for malice. And I'm, I think that there's a lot of penalized players now for things that aren't done maliciously. It's really interesting getting that viewpoint from someone that understands rugby casually, with all due respect, and chatting to me who's in it every single day. And that is the general consensus from the masses. Like when you're watching it, if someone goes in and throws an uppercut, a headbutt, gouges, stamps even, you'd be like, yeah, I understand. You can see a blatant red card as a casual fan. It is them kind of grey areas where the game is eating itself. Who was that uh, back rower for Northampton? He was just mental. Callum, maybe Callum something? Yeah, Callum Clark. Callum Clark. Where he did the old snap on, it was a hooker. The arm, yeah, Hawkins, Leicester. Rob Hawkins. And he, I watched, I went on a YouTube in thing after that, and there's one of him, I think he was like England 20s, and he jumps over a mall to headbutt something. Mm. Like, Whoa, that's red. Yeah, he's now found himself through, I don't know whether this is me speaking for him, through a holistic approach. Um, so he's doing some stuff at Saracens around personal development and players that come I out. rate that. And he talks about the monkey on the shoulder. What do they call it? Well, you'll know the name of it. The Chimp Paradox. The Chimp Paradox. There we go, James. You know, I'm going to say it's a shit book. Yeah. The, the idea concept of it is fantastic, but it's it's like a 30-second concept dragged over a few hours. And what I hated was in the audio book, the guy says human instead of human. Couldn't, couldn't do it. I'm a bit of a weirdo. Yeah, all these long words as well, which makes it sound 
significantly deeper. We're not going to do long words on here. I listened to a podcast with you and Chris Williams. Williams? Williamson. Williamson. Well, he would not be happy. Oh, no. And, well, I'll just go based on his social media, and we were chatting about it before the podcast. Fucking smart guy. Well, to be on the Joe Rogan podcast, you've got to be able to hold conversation and I go mean, into detail. I messaged him, and I said, I don't know how the fuck you're doing it, but you're so composed. I said, I know that you've been thinking about this moment because he's been podcasting five years, Chris Williamson. I said, I know you've been thinking about this for five years. No one in the podcasting space doesn't think about going on Rogan. We all, we all hope. It's the World Cup final, mm. right? And I said to him, it's like you fucking have manifested this and you've done this a million times. I said, if I went on Rogan, I'd be sat there going, hi, hi, hi Joe. You know, like, I'd be- Using all your buzzwords, yeah. you know. I'd be, yeah. I'd be mm. shitting my pants. Yeah. Or I think I would just open the pod by going, you're brilliant. No one says it enough. Everyone just sits there and chats. That might be better though. That might be the British way of doing it. It's just coming straight out with it. I'm just saying, mate, you're a legend. What did Chris say it was like? Did he give you, can you share any insight? What did he say the whole, was, yeah. it, was it as good as this? Was it um, a lovely, did you get the tube across? He said it's like a B-Tech gym, big gym show. That's what he said. But like, um, uh, he situated himself in Austin for exactly that, to mingle in those circles. Oh, really? that's why he's gone there. Because You read between the lines. Well, that's what I, that's what I picked up. Because one day, Rogan's probably got a slot. Oh, can I get out? Yeah. You know what I mean? You need to be close. Australia, that's why I've obviously not been invited on, you know. Yeah, gone, you've gone over. You've he's gone, gone over Sydney. to Texas, so. Yeah, I've been yeah. there. I was waving a sign outside his uh, uh, pick me. No, no, no nibbles. No nibbles. Hanging around the jiu-jitsu gyms. This is smart. Getting in with the right people. Well, this is what it is. Oh, yeah. Have you ever done jiu-jitsu? I have. Do you poorly. like it? I personally would absolutely love to get into it. And this is an excuse and I have to give the excuse. So I've been a few times. I had one of my mates who came on, Roddy Grant, big shout out to him. He was big into jujitsu. And I love boxing, love UFC, even back in the day, even before Chuck Liddell. Before it was cool. Yeah, I was starching people, like back in the day. Love UFC uh, and love the combat sports. And so I thought after rugby, I'll try a bit of jujitsu. And the excuse is, mate, the body's fucking wrecked. Yeah, and I'm you know I'm six nine with heels. I'm eighteen and a half stone. I've I said got, this to Hask. Said this to Burgess. They're like, I can't give my body to the sport. That's what you've done. Exactly. Right? So as much as mentally, I'd love to. Just can't. I just can't. And then the boxing side, the white collar stuff. I promised my wife I wouldn't taken enough head trauma. CTE concussion. Well, it's like who am I doing it for? Yes, I, I'm doing it for myself. I want to. I love doing that. But does it matter enough? Like probably not. I need to try and find other ways of getting rid of that energy but i am aggressive naturally that's me so i have to find another way i've been thinking about this quite a lot recently about why we are like why we are and i think that i think it's almost virtuous in some sense say oh yeah i'm an aggressive person or that you have that combative side to you and i think that a big population of people need to have that because rewind five thousand years ago we'd be like oh we need to go war but i'll go Mm. i'll give us a sharp stick let's go go on we'll go to another town and still their pigs, whatever it is. Like I, I, I've always had that in me, but rugby never quite, the annoying thing, right? I loved getting a hit on someone if you could, but there's nothing frustrating than making sure you're on side, sprinting towards the fly and he just passes the ball. You think you can't, mm. I've just had to run 2K to get a hit. In jiu-jitsu, they can't go anywhere. And it's constant contact, constant wrestling. I love it. Like I went back to sevens a couple of years ago and one, I was like, the effort for contact is so much higher than I remember. And I got chopped by two people at the same time. And I was like, this is dangerous. 15 years of rugby, never considered it dangerous. After doing jiu-jitsu and coming back, I was like, this is an injury waiting to happen. Mm. And I've got both my ACLs, touch wood. I've got like 
bit of tendonitis here and there from jiu-jitsu, but like nothing, nothing bad. And I was like, yeah, I can't do it. And I think there are so many people out there that do need to get that energy out. But the crazy thing with boxing is for a start, 99% of your training is on boxing, it's hitting pads. Because boxing is being in front of someone trying to hit them. And the sparring, there's this weird thing that happens where like, we, okay, yeah, we're just doing sparring, cool, nothing crazy. But the second you get excited and put too much zealous into a hit and you clip me, I go, okay, cool. Then boom, I get you in the ribs and you go, okay, then you uppercut me. Oh, sorry, I forgot we weren't doing uppercuts. Mm. There's no way that two people can punch themselves or punch each other without one of them just getting a bit carried away. Yeah, especially at the higher level. I had George Groves in there. He was sat there. Brilliant guest. Brilliant. Bigger, bigger than I thought. Both ways. Big bloke. He's got a podcast as well. Really engaging. Really smart bloke as well. I'm going to come back to the question on Chris's experience with Rogan. So he's knocking on the door. He's moved over there. Yeah, and getting invited on. He's been to the comedy club. He actually said something quite profound the other day. He goes, because Rogan's such a, a character, he goes, when he's in the room with people, there's like this distorted reality that follows him around the room. You can't be normal with him because you're talking to one of the most powerful, successful and influential people on the planet. And he wasn't put there through you know, being a monarch or anything like that. And I said this to you briefly before and you told me to shut up because we weren't recording. Some people just like him, whatever. But let's remove everything from it. You've got a guy who, you know, for, I think he's from a military-backed family, travelled around, martial artist, comedian, questionable. Nah, I'm joking. But then he uh, gets a gig on TV, whatever. But then he pursues something that he finds interesting and does it for 10 years without fail. If you'd seen Joe Rogan five, six, seven years into his career, you would have thought he was insane. And there's a moment where Tom Green, do you remember that film, Freddie Got Fingered? Mm. Daddy, would you like some sausage? He goes on Tom Green's show, and I'm not sure if you've seen the footage, he sits there with a corona on the sofa and he goes, this is amazing because it's television, but it's not scripted. He goes, we're just here having a chat. You see in his mind, he, he coins the idea of a podcast and he already in his mind goes, if I do this for 10 years, it'll be the biggest thing ever. Mm does it for 10 years it is the biggest thing ever at the same time married got kids i can only imagine he's a good father pays his taxes he's an advocate of drug use fair enough super successful guy that loves weed and occasionally does mushrooms like this guy this is the way i'd put it right some people think i'm sucking him off you would leave your kids with joe rogan if you needed to for a couple hours someone goes oh cool oh fuck, i need someone to look after my kids joe goes i look after him cool you would not leave him with biden <laughs> And you would not leave them with Trump. <laughs> so the two dudes that have fucking run the most powerful country with hundreds of fucking nuclear weapons, you wouldn't leave your kids with. That's a great analogy. But then Joe Rogan, and everyone's like, oh, he's a fucking... You'd leave your kids with him. Yeah, it's because he's got an opinion. So he has an opinion that divides it's opinion. against the narrative. I know, but he is true to his word. And you know what? The, the thing that impresses me the most about him, and it isn't about the podcast, and it's about something, again, that we spoke about off air, is he's unapologetic about what he is. And he also states a lot of the time, it's like, this is just my opinion. This doesn't mean it's the truth. It doesn't mean it's the truth. It doesn't mean that this is what everyone else should think. And this is where society is now. And I've got four children now, so I'm trying to migrate them through a schooling system, which is very different to what we went through. And my goodness me, it is a different world to what our parents went through. So it's, I find myself second guessing and having to, to apologize for who I am and how I am and what I believe. And I listen to, and maybe it's an American thing. 
I think I do think it is. I think there's an American element to it. You do a little bit about it. You're an unapologetic, but there's a lot of people there, and he set the the tone. He set the charge, and with the podcast of the way that he's done it, it's free. People listen to him, but the COVID thing was the thing. That was the one that really, I think, showed because he had, and we're in the Spotify studio here. He just signed a hundred million pound deal, and people are dropping off Spotify because of the stuff that he's saying and the fact that he carried on. He, there was one apology. Was it Neil Young? Was it who I think, I think so. his, pulled off Spotify? Yeah, yeah, that was it, wasn't it? Was it the singer? singer yeah, right? the singer, yeah. He's the, I'm reading his book at the minute, randomly. Um, but yeah, there was the one apology that he had, but it's the fact of how unapologetic he is. But the thing that I like the most, and this is what we're doing now, nowhere near to his level or his and Chris's level, yours and Chris's level is pretty decent, but is the art of conversation and listening and how well read the experiences that he's been through from a youngster all the way up to now and using that to be able to deliver information because they're like two and a half hours long they're shorter now they used to be longer they used to be three and a half hours long but the breadth of guests that he gets but i just think there is a an art like he plays himself down there is an art to deliver what he is doing and whether or not there is that deep-rooted authenticity that it was never for money and he, he didn't foresee the future of what it could potentially be but completely fair play he went a bit right wing at some point when it went real political but apart from that, he's, he's the greatest. The the interesting thing is, uh, earlier in the pandemic, I was very pro-vaccine because I based my stance on the vaccine from the information that was available, but then the previous history of vaccines. So, you know, if I was to draw an opinion on what I think rugby players are like, I would draw that based on people in front of me now and then all the rugby players I've ever known. I'd like branch them together. So very pro-vaccine. I remember there was a point in me that I was like, Joe Rogan, what a guy, but fucking bit of an anti-vaxxer. But then where for a short period of time I thought he was in the wrong. We then go back round circle and I'm like, fuck, I probably owe him and a few other people an apology from the things that I was saying about it. And all along he was like, my parents, I would probably say to have it, mm -hmm. but I don't think that anyone fit and healthier kids should have it. And I go, it's pretty much what people are saying now, pretty much the full circle from it. And I mean, yeah, he never really was there. He didn't put a lab coat on and sit on his podcast and go, listen to me. He's just having a conversation. Like you say, <clears throat> that art of podcasting, I very much uh, enjoy the podcasts where it's his friends, where they're just fucking around. When he has like an important guest on, they almost have to, oh, tell me about your new book or whatever. But when he has his close-knit friends on, they just fucking chat shit and smoke weed and get pissed and I love it. Yeah, it's class. What what else did Chris say? Did he, you know, was he comfortable or did he feel, because again, going back to this guy, Chris, and the reason why I'm talking about it is because there's a business venture that's involved. We don't need to talk too much about it, but listening to him, and listening to him talk on his podcast and the Joe Rogan one, what a gifted guy in terms of how he speaks, his knowledge, all these different things. Did he say he felt out of his comfort zone when he was in? Did he prep? Like, what was the... I don't think he would have admitted that to me. But as far as prep, mm. I think he has with the last five years of having guests on. But I think that, like, um, it, I suppose probably once you met him, he's, he's just a normal guy. Mm. And that's why I remember he was saying, he was like, just a normal guy. You just go see him, shows you around, have a chat, talk about things. Like, um, and I mean, that that circle in Austin, Austin, super cool place. Have you been? Mm, yeah, played. Uh, played in Houston and then had a couple of days in Austin. Always loved the place. I mean, and the food. Like, I never, I, I wind up my friends that are foodies. Like, oh, steak, it all tastes the same. Porthouse, ribeye, it's like, it tastes like steak. And they're like, what the fuck? How dare you say this? And then when I went there, I never was like, oh, you need to have the barbecue. I was like, how good can this taste? Oh my God, mm. I was not ready for it. 
fucking expensive place. It is expensive. But like, uh, and I think I went towards the end of 2021. And it was fucking ridiculous because of the pandemic rules. You couldn't go from Europe to America. So I had to go to Dubai for two weeks to then fly into America. It was fucked. And I'll admit now that uh, you had to get your tests done all the time, all the time. I had a mate who just photoshopped them. <laughs> I was like, because what, even if I, if I am positive, like then I would just get someone to Photoshop it. So I might as well just skip the whole thing and just get them to Photoshop it before. Mm. I was like, well, I've already booked my flight. I'm flying from Dubai to fucking Dallas or whatever it is. Everyone was doing that as well. Every single person I know was just Photoshopping their PCR tests. And in America, it cost me like 400 US dollars to get a test. Insane. Like we lived through an insanity back then. Oh, it was mental. I, I've aged significantly over them. I say everyone says two years. It wasn't quite two years, was it? It was about a year, 18 months in and out of the drama but with four kids yeah that must home. have been tough yeah wife's mum was poorly my nan actually died of covid well, of covid she was in a halfway care home so we kind of felt the full force of the rules because we couldn't have proper funerals my nan died on her own but also understanding all the stuff around do we need to be vaccinated like we didn't vaccinate the kids for example and there was a lot of not pushback but there was a bit of pressure to make that happen. But I think, yeah, I mean, a lot of people were very different how they dealt with it. But you th I mean, we were very lucky. We lived in the Cotswolds at the time, just around the corner from Soho Farmhouse. Lovely at the weekend, not in the week. And we had the four kids to deal with and that kind of pressure and the bubble of being in there. And we were right financially, we were fine. We had the outdoors and it was still fucking I was going to say, if you're in like a, a big apartment in Peckham or something, you're like, <sighs> the fuck? So I was, again, in Australia, it was good. But Australia, we bounced out the pandemic way before everyone else. So we were having festivals when you guys were still in lockdown. I remember early 2021, we would resume to normal. Like I remember seeing an example, play a festival with 40,000 people. You guys were only allowed outside for an hour a day. But then just as Australia snapped into a lockdown again, I came back. But the crazy- You chased, th you chased the wave, didn't you? <laughs> but then uh, the insanity was, people coming to Australia had to do two weeks in a hotel room to quarantine, right? But they were like, military guns hazmat suits whatever two weeks on your own in a hotel room none of them have windows so you couldn't crack a bit of a window get fresh air two weeks mm. i remember Duran saying his skin felt oily like after the second week but there were athletes that came back from the olympics and they flew into sydney two weeks in the hotel then they'd fly back to their state in adelaide and have to do another two weeks straight off the bat 28 days in quarantine for what and a, a girl i had on the uh, podcast she went to tokyo to compete in the olympics for great britain she was within nine seats of someone who reports having covid during the olympics as she like literally got to tokyo boom room two weeks got tested almost every day negative 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 wouldn't let her out so while everyone's in the olympic village having a good time she's in quarantine for sitting within a few rows of someone that had it yeah it was crazy and you think about all the things as humans that we need now the stuff that you're into around personal training we're both into personal development outdoors, everything that goes with that. And it was the complete opposite. We were the, suppressed. You the jujitsu get... thing. I missed having my arms around blokes. Mm. I missed it. So then I bought some mats, go to a park and I just laid the mats down, connect them all together and I'd be like, let's roll. So I go into parks and do it. Who with? Just people I knew who trained. Not like, randomers. No, hey, come here, come here. <laughs> but like training partners and stuff. There was like a quite a nice part of it when you went back to training, but just insane like masks on planes as well I remember i was flying business class she was like oh you gotta put your mask on i was like i am socially distanced mm. i'm six foot from anywhere else on the plane 
Doesn't make sense. That was the social thing where you, I'd get pissed off. If I'd go shopping and I'm pushing my trolley, I ain't got gloves on, by the way, if I, and I've got my mask up, just because I'm falling in line with the social consensus, looking after the older people. If I saw people with their dick hanging out the top, I was raging. I don't know why. I think it was raging at myself. Because you're having, you're because having to I, smell because, your own coffee breath. Exactly, because I'm having to do it. That's why. But it was, it was mental. It was crazy. But wasn't that where you were spawned into what we see now social media sensation Oof. it was it happened there around that time didn't it so there was, a, it was a, what i'm basically asking is is how you've evolved to get where you are now it seemed to accelerate it yeah. just before or during i think um so started posting in 2014 between 2014 and 2018 so the first four years i got 10,000 followers and that's i thought i was big time at mm. that point then it took four more to get to a million the the growth did go a bit crazy. I suppose maybe in 2020, just before the pandemic, I was at maybe three, 400,000 on Instagram. Okay. So, so decent. Yeah, we're still there. And I just done my first book deal with HarperCollins at the time. And I was on like Piers Morgan, Good Morning Britain in that January. The first few months of the pandemic, I just sulked. I would like, everyone else was being like, let's do home workouts. This is being positive. Courtney Black, like exploding, like all of this stuff. And I was sat there at home growing a beard going, this is fucking shit. I was like, I want to fucking just, I just, Everyone was like, it's your opportunity. Everyone's at home. And I was like, I just had no drive to do anything. I just played video games and got fat. And I was just like, this is fucking wank. Then coming out of the pandemic, I probably got a bit more of a second wind when I came back to the UK in 2021 for a bit and then went back to Oz. But I'm very happy just being left on my own. And to me, uh, now I, I moved about an hour outside of Sydney. Got a dog, got a missus, got my little home. And from there, I just like to grow on different platforms and do whatever. I run like little initiatives. At the moment, I'm becoming obsessed with YouTube. Like I thought for many years that I just wasn't a creator that created on YouTube, but I've just come to realize my content was never good enough. And I would say that the pandemic at first was something that I really fucking hated. But then after a while, I was like, irrespective, I've just got to keep growing socials, building businesses. And because if I don't grow on socials, my businesses can't perform. I can't reinvest the money into making them better or employ people or use developers and all of this stuff. So I kind of just had to be like, stop sulking, mate, get on with it. Did a second book coming out of the pandemic, did a third book end of last year. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the book was great. At first I didn't want to do a book. And I remember News Court building just opposite the road. My publishers were like, look, some people think you're a fucking piece of shit and they're going to walk into Tesco's and see your book. It goes, that piece of shit you have the opportunity for them to open it. And with what you've written, you could change their mind. I was like, that's a fucking good way to, that's a good way to put it. So whenever I wrote the books, I was like, if someone was to open my book that thinks I'm a crass, facetious, vulgar knobhead, they could read it and go, that's a fair point. So that kind of motivated me to write the books. And then we created a touring model off the book. So this is the, the wild thing. My manager is originally a music promoter, festivals, events. He's currently like doing Dizzy Rascals tour at the moment. So he was like, we're going to do a live tour that goes with your book. Okay, what are you going to talk about? Pick the 10 best things from the book and we'll make it a live show. We'll make sure everyone's got a gin and tonic in their hands. Your best mate can open and roast you for the first 15 minutes. First year was like uh, Union Chapel. Uh, no, before that it was Clapham Grand, then it was Union Chapel. Then it was this one in North London that was like 1,500 cap. Then recently for the last book, we did Hammersmith Polo, three and a half thousand people, and which is fucking insane. Mm. And being motivated to create content for the book, then writing the book, then making a live show out of it. Then at the same time, trying to like run a social media strategy, they kind of all feed into each other. And it's kept me kind of motivated because I've always got something to work on. But um, 
Yeah. It's interesting at the moment. Instagram and TikTok, although I like them as platforms, I found myself the last year or so getting caught up in just trying to go viral. So rather than trying to help people, I was almost just calling people out a lot, which is fun. And people will stop me in the street and go, I love that you call out people. But I was like, I'm being a bit of a negative cunt. And I was like, that's not me. Usually I'm like, I like to be funny. I like to entertain people. And really my backbone of all my content has been education. I was like, maybe I've I've got a bit lost with that. So I'm now trying to refind and rediscover myself, go through like, my, my manager goes, James Smith, season two. He's like, why don't you go back to like actually trying to help people, actually trying to do longer form educational pieces. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And that's going to be a bit of like a, a grind to build like a YouTube following, but that's where I'm currently at. Yeah, well, there's loads in there that I'm keen to unpick a little bit because I said to my wife, I said, oh, I'm interviewing James Smith. Her mate follows you, loves it. My wife knows a little bit about it and she's like, oh, what does he do? And it was one of them I had to try and explain to her amongst the four kids as I was leaving the house. I said, he's an online PT, but I know you significantly more than that. But if you were to describe to people what you do and who you are in a couple of sentences, I know there's a load of different things. The way that I would describe it, it's almost like you are explaining life and fitness and the challenges for dummies, effectively, like a man of the people in terms of trying to simplify training trying to simplify nutrition calling out all these different fads see i found it very difficult to put it into three lines there so i'm asking you to do that it's, it's, i definitely get a buzz from like coaching and education because that's that's just been my thing so every every penny i've earned in 10 years has been from pt books or talks that's it never done like a paid promotion or anything like that so i like to stay true to those kind of roots of like trying to educate people and I are do- you qualified in them fields because you seem like you are very well read or is people feeding you information i've cut you off there because no, just on I, that point it's a good point like uh, they call it chauffeur knowledge mm. have you heard that terminology yeah. before so like some people are just vessels to other people's knowledge and i am in that respect but i always got well everyone seemed to think i'd learning difficulties as a kid i'd spent most of my time at school in the special ed cloakroom but truth be told whenever i try and understand something i have to break it down and so when I'm breaking it down for other people, it's often how I learned it. I never really understood the circulatory system in full depth until I taught myself that it's very much like the London underground. So when I sit with clients, they're like, I'm like amino acids, glucose, all this. People are like, what the fuck? And I'm like, okay, London underground, circulatory system, oxygen passenger gets on at the lung, carbon dioxide gets off. You know, they're like, okay. The, the carbohydrate passenger comes to London, the glucose members of the family get on the London go, you know, and then people are like, oh, cool, that makes sense. I'm like, yeah, that's how I learned it myself. So yeah, to your point, I like to simplify things to make it just understandable because there's so many people in so many professions trying to have a cock off. It's like, oh yeah, you know, the gluconeogenesis, you mean? <laughs> and you're like, mate, you're alienating the very people mm. that will buy your services or, you know, be in your business by trying to seem superior or smarter than they are so it is the life of dummies it is is how i look at it my simple brain looks at when you put stuff out it's like right well that makes sense because of this it's like clear it's quick and you're one of the first movers weren't you in that social media space like the piece to camera like really efficient edits really quick really digestible shareable was that just organic or was that a yeah, I, it started with me going live on Facebook because I never did, I never had a camera till I was at 50,000. I never learned how to edit. I do all my own edits, do everything myself. It's just me and a tripod. And um, then I remember some lives I'd be pissed off like at some kind of misinformation and then I'd get a better response to being more emotionally active in them. So I was like, cool, I'm learning here. I'm getting some feedback from it. And then, yeah, over time I was like, how can I best communicate my point with other people? But 
so many people, let's look at intermittent fasting. People are like, oh, you know, uh, anti-aging, autophagy, all of this. I'm like, fuck off. You're evidently just eating less. Like you're creating a belief system that means when you get hungry at 11, you don't fucking eat. I go, you've been trying this 20 years and nothing's worked. That's the first thing that's worked. People go, no, it must be, you know, my glucose and my insulin. I'm like, it's fucking not. You know, people are so quick to bullshit themselves to whatever it is. And I'm just, people need to be told that way because this is it. I always use this example. Playing at Maiden Ed 10, 12 years ago, played first team rugby for like a year and a half. Be second row back. If I wasn't playing well, they put me in the second row. Got dropped. Wasn't in the sheet, like on the team sheet. I got up to my coach, like, mate, I've been dropped. What's going on? Because, mate, you played like shit last weekend. He goes, like, you fucking played really bad. And he goes, I can't believe you missed that many tackles with your parents watching. And I was like, wow. I was like, fuck, that's hit me deep there. But that following Tuesday, I was at training on time. I wasn't fucking around. And I was hitting those tackle bags hard as I could. The worst thing he could have done to me was be like, oh, we're just rotating players, Smithy. We're just, you know, mixing something up, trying some things out. People, some people respond better to the fluff answers, but some people need to be told. And for me, saying someone like, hey, mind your fucking neck in. Yeah, that intermittent fasting thing's great for you, but ultimately it's the only thing that's fucking stopped you eating so much. Like, that's the way I would want to be told. So I suppose in some respects, I'm trying to be the person in life that I needed when I was younger mm. for whether it be rugby, career, PT, whatever it is. I just wish that instead of doing the insanity workout in my front room, jumping around like a cunt in Gloucester when I was 19, someone could have just come along and been like, try eating less. Surely it can't be that simple. And them to just be like, listen, mate, don't eat till 4 p.m. every day. Try that for three weeks. Let me know how you get on. Uh, shut the fuck up. Do it. Let's talk in three weeks. You know, something like that. The insanity workout was a good workout though, wasn't Duke it? Duper. Yes. I hated it. On the CDs, right? Mm. The black The case. DVDs, yeah. Yeah, the DVDs. I used to watch the wife do it. I did enjoy watching it, but... Duke Duper. Never did That's it. Sean T. Yeah, Sean T. That was right. I've, I've got trauma. Re yeah, but... Just sweating. I just leave it. This is why I think Joe Wicks got a lot of stick from my real relationship with Sean T. Mm. Because I did that and I never lost any weight because I was going Domino's two for Tuesdays afterwards. Mm. And like, it seems crazy looking back now, but... Why, why, when I was younger, there was no one saying, consume less calories, mate. Like, there just wasn't. It seems crazy looking back now. It seems like an obvious thing, doesn't it? The eating thing is, I would say, the, the hardest thing now. Even with my kids, like, they eat healthy. Like, we eat very healthy as a family. Me and the missus train every day, so they're kind of accustomed to watching that. But what I find crazy, and we've done it, you open up the fridge, you can buy a can of Coke, you can buy a family pack of crisps, chocolate bar on tap. We're talking about the worst foods that humans can consume. It's it, even, you can't even fill your car up with petrol without mm. there being 5,000 hedonic foods it's there. crazy. But the other thing is like, we live in a world where, fucking I have since been back here. I've probably gone three weeks without being hungry. Not once. Mm. Not even close to hungry. Like, I've gone to my stomach being empty and I've fucking eaten, but I've not endured any hunger in the same way that humanity for many of us not all of us many of us we don't actually endure any struggle at all apart from my train commuting this morning but like we we have it so fucking easy that we've really lost sight on what reality is like for humans for the majority of human existence we've been hungry quite literally and it was a normal emotion it was a normal thing to feel it was people think that now we're like we're really gluttonous and that we overeat i went every in our dna every time you'd be putting in mass amounts of foods, you should overeat until you could fucking barely eat anymore because 
food has not been an abundant in human history for so long. Mm. You know, for the majority of time, more people died of famine than obesity. For quite a while, it's been the other way around. Um, because of that, we have a very warped kind of relationship with food, but people think we're broken. We're not, we're completely fine. The environment is what's fucked. Mm. And with the like capitalistic age that we live in, they're not going to remove food from us. And like, people seem to think that what I hate is people think humans are like this divine species and this us in the animal kingdom. We're all the same. We're all, you know, wired to survive in some respects. And there's such an abundance of food. Imagine even if you went back 10,000 years, you think you're going to walk past a bush of berries, eat them slowly, chew each berry 40 times and then go, Oh, I'm full and walk off. Are oh, you fuck? And never in that. We, we need to have more self-control than ever. I mean, look at porn. Any person with an internet connection, which is anyone fucking over seven years old, can see more naked women in an hour than any human would ever see in history. Fuck, mm. you can see more naked women in five minutes if you watch some orgy than most human beings ever saw in, in their whole lives. We have so much access to these things that in some respects, I'm like, we're lucky we're not more fucked up. Mm. Jordan Peterson has a good quote. He goes, let's not ask people why they take drugs. The answer is pretty obvious. Let's ask them why they don't take drugs every day. And the same with food. In some respects, I look around, I go, it's, it's incredible that not more of us are obese. Mm. That we, oh, no thanks. Or oh, not me. Or oh, I'm going to walk that or whatever it is. Because it's difficult. It's difficult being a human with this many options around you for food. There's a terminology I came across right in my last book called declinism, where a lot of people seem to think that society and everything is coming, may, the world's getting worse. 96% of British people were asked if the world was getting better or worse. 96% people said it was getting worse. So a lot of people think the world's getting worse. But we have less people in poverty than ever before. Women are better educated than ever before. There's never been less children that died during childbirth, never been less women that died during childbirth. Like there's, the world's actually never been a better place to live, irrespective of a pandemic, fucking war in Ukraine, all of these things that people go, what about Ukraine? You're like, fucking hell, like, Global poverty and all of these things uh, are on their way down. Like even malaria deaths, whatever it is. It's very strange to think that we live in the best time that's actually ever, ever been alive. And it's no wonder that we're getting a bit soft because of that. And there's that quadrant where they say, good times make weak people, mm. weak people make bad times, bad times make strong people, strong people make good times. It's the cycle. I say strong people because the original one says strong men. <laughs> And I'm you definitely can't say I'm not that, a fucking no. misogynist. No, you're in London now. Exactly. You can't. Well, it's money as well, isn't it? I mm. think where people talk about tough, it comes down to material values and money. I think that that's when they say times are tough, cost of living, crisis. It's expensive here, man. It is expensive. Yeah, it is. Australia was always known as the most expensive place, mm. right? It's £1.10 Sydney a litre of petrol. £1.10. Yeah, why Australia then? I know you said after popping something delicious and deciding to go, is it everything you hope for? Because I'll just carry on. I mean, it's been miserable here. And I live in Edinburgh, so it's even more miserable from a weather perspective. Have you been to Australia? I have. A funny story about Australia. Um, there ain't much detail to this. So I spoke to my best mate, Bravo, Gloucester team manager. He's been in here before with another mate of mine, Ed Slater, who's going through a, a fucking lad. tough time. Yeah going through a tough time. He's got MND. So we came oh, we came in here. 
but we had a. I shall saw a clip of that. Yeah. We had a great, we had a great time. And I said, oh, anyway, caught up with Rave. I said, oh, I'm with James Smith, and he said, oh, isn't he in Australia? He's in Bondi. I said, I don't know if he's in Bondi, but I've seen pictures around. And then we started reminiscing about when we were in Australia. We absolutely loved it. So we did the old school Sydney, and then went up the east coast. I don't know. I might have the order wrong, but like Newcastle, Byron Bay, and we stopped in Byron Bay in a youth hostel. And one of our mates, big shout out to Davey Young, completely trashed this youth hostel. I say trashed. Made a mess. They had all the washing lines all over the swimming pool, people drying out the stuff. He's just come in and an absolute cunt, just put it all in the swimming pool. And also there was a big fight that kicked off in one of the nightclubs, not, not to do with us. And this young lad's nose was across his face and he was panicking and because we're rugby lads, broken noses, there's nothing, just popping back in. He's like, don't worry, I'm a PhD, I'm a PhD. I was like, what do you mean? He bang, pops it back in. He's like, what, you're a doctor? And he said, no. He said, you said you were a PhD. And he said, no, my name's Pissed Dave. That was the whole thing. We've got a doctor. PhD. PhD, Pissed Dave. And then we went up to Ailey Beach, which was clearly where the end point of people go, because you could see, like, the shape of people. Like, you start off in Sydney, all good, you got Byron. They're all on the weed, they're all surfers. And then they're in the comfort zone as they get up to Ailey Beach. It was lovely up there. Get like, a good boat trip at Early Beach. Went fishing. That's Whit Sundays, right? Yeah, went fishing on the Whit Sundays and did this unbelievable jet ski safari. So there was like a north. It was the most bizarre thing ever. Again, we were reminiscing about it. So we thought, fuck it, let's do a jet ski safari. We're in Australia, and it was a new company that set up. So we went down to the to the port just there. It was beautiful, idyllic, and two people running it. A couple from Leeds, of all places, right? we were the first tour to go out and you had to put these stingray suits on now imagine like i'm six foot nine this ain't fitting me on the front mate on uh, rave on the back i don't you've been on a jet ski yeah, with two yeah. people like that you've got to go fast for it to be controlled you have to go for you go slow and we didn't know so we were on it and next thing like we tip into the water he's panicking because he can't swim and we go off for like three hours on this jet ski safari and it was wild. There was saltwater crocodiles. And the reason we had to wear these suits, we realised, was the box jellyfish and all that around in the waters where we were. There was like these birds that were like dinosaurs that were coming in. Like It was unbelievable. I mean, it was dangerous. It was. I'm sure it weren't regulated. But what a country. It, it gets sketchy up in like Queensland area. I remember I started in Cairns and worked my way down. So I went over to Australia. I was like, I'll see what it's like. So I fly into Cairns. And uh, I didn't really know anyone. So I just started swiping on Tinder. And every night I just go on a date. And like, I'd then have a girlfriend in there for a week and then I'd have to break up with her and leave and move south on a Greyhound bus. And at the time I just started like online coaching, but I only had 3000 followers, but I had 10 clients paying me 55 pounds a week. So I was rich as a backpacker. I was like, everyone's drinking goon, like a bag of wine. I was like, this is a six pack of beers, you know? <laughs> and um, basically my incentive was if I could go on a successful date, I wouldn't have to sleep in the dorm. So I was giving it some chat on these dates, you know. So talk to me how that works. And I know you're going to think of ridiculous. I've been with my wife 19 years, but I'm not old school. Like I'm pretty down there with the kids. So you're in Cairns, you're in a random place and you're on Tinder. And I just, I just chat to people because there's a lot of people that are transient, right? So I just get chatting and I'll be like, uh, do you want to go for a drink tonight? Because there's single people traveling. On message. Like yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you just message them, you're like, hey, do you want to go for a drink tonight? Because when you're traveling, you're, there's a bit of vulnerability. You're also a bit lonely. This you meet someone i remember the first person i met was like already established he'd got a job there whatever and then we hooked up the first night we went on a date 
But then we're like, oh, should we rent a car and drive to Cape Tribulation or whatever it is? And then we'd hang out for like five, six days. And just before it would start turning into something serious, I'd be like, okay, see you later, I'm off. And I did that every single place on the way down. Especially my ears would perk if a girl had aircon. I'm mm. like, aircon? <laughs> cool, staying at yours tonight. But like, I would always be very, very transparent with them. I'd be like, look, I'm only traveling, I'm only here for whatever. And like, uh, when you said why Australia, I think I'm very close to my family and my parents. And I was working in Bracken as a PT, very close to my parents and all that. When I went to Australia, I was a very long way away from home. So I think it was like a kick in the ass of like independence. I was like, I really need to support myself here. And if it doesn't work out here, I'm going to have to go home. But then you can kind of spawn a different identity when you move as well, because you're no longer tied to the places you're familiar with. So when I first went to Sydney, I went to fitness first, started working there. And I, I remember looking around and like in the UK for so long, whenever I've been somewhere, I'm like, I couldn't live here. I like Gloucester. I loved it when I finished in Hartbury College. And then after a while, I was like, I can't mm -hmm. live here. I went back two years later and I was like, what was I thinking? Then where my mom and dad live, like the area, not mad on it. London, London's nice for a few weeks. Then I'm like, oh, I don't like it. When I got to Sydney, I was like, if you had to retire somewhere, if you had to have kids somewhere, if you had to do this, would this be the place? And I'm like, yeah, it would be. Now I live, like I, I always saw it. I was like, first of all, the skies are blue all the time irrespective if it's hot or not. I'm like, that just makes me feel good. When I come mm -hmm. back to London, it's fucking great. I didn't realize how much the color of the sky affected my mood. The coffee was good. I like the fact that everyone gets up early. And even when we went out and got pissed, people don't pull all nighters. The people start drinking earlier. They go into bars and clubs earlier. They leave earlier. When I started, when I first went to us, there was like a lockout law. You couldn't get in anywhere after like 11. Didn't serve alcohol after 12. So my hangovers weren't even as bad because I was going to bed four hours earlier. I was like, everything here, I was like, it's pretty good. Although it is a bit of a nanny state. And then I set up a business, got my business partner there. Um, I had like a good friendship group and like, we just lived a good life. Mm. Like some days it'd be like, let's go play volleyball down by the beach. We're doing things that as a Brit, you would only do on holiday. Then I'll get in phases of like, okay, every day for a month, I'm going to go swim in the sea before I look at my phone, before I do emails, before I do anything. Now I moved an hour outside of Sydney, got a dog, got a missus, got a house. I'm literally on the beach. So I think to myself now, if I was to have kids in a couple of years, their first memories could be playing on the beach with me, not on holiday, but where they live. Now, my only concern is that being a Brit, you grow up ambitious because you want to have a lifestyle that's kind of better than normal in the UK because the average lifestyle in the UK probably isn't that great. The average lifestyle in Australia probably is pretty good. Mm. You know, even if, mate, near where I live, right, there's uh, council houses in the best spot ever. They're on the beach. They've got the best views of some of the best regions I've ever seen in my life. I was like, man, I, that's, that's unreal. But so getting back to my point, I'm worried that having children in Australia, they might not be that ambitious. Because if they've got blue skies, holiday vibes, beach, sea, what are you working for, man? Yeah, but is it all about work? No. Mm. But, you know, you work hard. It's nice to take your family on a nice holiday gonna go ibiza we're gonna stay somewhere nice whatever it is you're like you escape the mundane for something good i'm just saying like i don't want you know i don't think my kids would ever grow up into wealth let's say they might not grow up into debt which would be a fucking fantastic thing but you ever see that like distortion where wealthy kids just can't get on with life because they haven't got the real problems that humans need mm. i'm just worried that i can't make i can't make my life too too good for my kids that i haven't had yet because otherwise they might not be ambitious well that is the worry might take it for granted. Yeah. There's a load of stuff out there, isn't there? Like a similar analogy that you use where the circle goes around, like someone that struggled 
and then they don't want their kids to struggle. So they give them a slightly better life and then a better life, better education, more money. And then at some point it goes full circle where they lose everything. Because I, we have the same conversation around our kids. The reason I got to where I got to was because of desperation. Like when I look back on it now, I didn't know what it was. It was desperation. I was desperate. And desperate people can do extraordinary things. Not everything, not all the time. But then it's more comfortable for my kids. They don't have to worry. Like now, it's got to a point now, peer pressure, my lad's 12, hasn't had a mobile phone, and he's the last, last man, last boy standing for a phone. I felt awful because he's, I, I could have given him a phone when he was three, but I purposely thinking, don't give him a phone. Same with trainers. He's knocking about the poor lad in these shacks. So these shacks, trainers, I don't know if you've heard of these, they're like 30 quid versions of... The Jordans, the poor lad, and you can see they're massive, uncomfortable. And it's like, I'm desperate not to just say, look, mate, here's a pair of Jordans. Even though kids that potentially can't afford it just get everything given to them. That's the constant battle when you're a parent. It's like, how do you make them ambitious? Like, how do you show them the struggle? How do you make them desperate to make something of themselves? But you don't always have to do that. I don't think there's a point where it has to be uncomfortable for them to be successful. I think that sometimes that can be our mindset when we listen to stuff and read stuff. You know, desperation seems like a really negative thing, but I actually think some people could do with more of it. Talking to personal trainers at my event at the weekend, some of them are looking to go work in a pure gym. And they're like, if I work for 15 hours for the gym, I get free rent. I'm like, fuck you, that's not free rent. You're working minimum wage, so you don't have to pay the gym. 15 hours should be worth a lot to you. They go, yeah, you know, but I'm new, blah, blah, blah. If I don't do the three hours, I've got to pay whatever, 100 pounds. I'm like, that would be better. Because if you pay the money, you have to get the clients. You have to, or you're fucking in debt and you owe the gym. That's the desperation you've got to conjure up inside. So like, you know, you know the film Warrior? Mm. If you don't win this oh, fight, you're going to lose your home. Love it. Yeah, fucking that's what you lose. You need the fire in the belly. It's like, oh yeah, free rent. I'm like, fuck that mindset. Because if you're getting free and there's no negative outcome from you not succeeding, you will not work hard. Mm. And I love Tim Ferriss in, in one of his books. He was like, you I say this to PTs, I'm like, oh, um, how much is your rent? 400 pounds, cool. How many clients would you need to have a week? 10, cool, so two a day. If I put a gun to your head, could you do it? Yeah, well, fucking do it then. And that mentality needs to be there for so many different things. Someone's like, oh, you know, I want to start a podcast, but Spotify won't let me in the studio so I get 10 million downloads. Cool. If I gave you two years, I said I'd murder your family if you didn't do it. Could you do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't have to threaten to murder your family for you to do it. So many people almost lack desperation. They create an environment that is void of desperation. And because of that, they never get the elixir of motivation they need to actually work harder. Yeah. And they're the great stories that you hear people who've come through that. And one of the ones I've used before, the analogy. So my mates went to join the military when we were younger. That was my path as well. Tried to get into the paras. Too tall. Are you actually too tall to go to Paris? I wasn't too tall. So my dad was in the special forces. So 28 years, military, vacant father, did tours in Northern Ireland. I was born actually in Hereford, registered in Swindon. Though. That's my birth certificate because it was 1982 during the Falklands War. They didn't want anyone <clears throat> to have Hereford on their birth certificate. So we traveled around. I was in that world and the Gulf War. So Falklands, Gulf War, Northern Ireland, which was gnarly. My sister was born over there. Then mum and dad went their separate ways, ended up in Coventry of all places. Absolutely at all. But the lads that I grew up with were all into the military. So we were in the cadets 
I was in cadets. What, what were you in? Air cadets? Uh, or? Army cadets. I was in the army and the air cadets. I was going to say you say air cadets and in Paris. Yeah, 2286, that was the air cadets. But then I wanted to go in the army. So I went that way, did a barb test down at Aldershot. Lovely place. Is it? Good spot? No, no. Aldershot. No, horrible. Fucking shit I tell you, ain't as bad as cough. <laughs> but then on the fitness, I wasn't even allowed. So I was as fit as I've ever been because I was desperate. I wanted to join the military, like my dad and like my granddad. And when I went there, failed my medical. I was like, what on? The lot of uh, height, weight ratio, your BMI, your obese. My mate Bentley, who had the biggest belly you've ever seen on any human, couldn't even do two chin-ups. The irony, he went to do 12 years in the rural logistics and I didn't get in. Thankfully, I didn't. But my other two mates, the story is, my other two mates went for the Marines. One of them, like, we're right, similar backgrounds, but he was a choir boy, comfort at home, home comforts. And my other mate, AD, had nothing, like, nothing at all was from the streets he excelled sbs he actually got medically discharged and was doing some mad stuff for mi5 or something and i could see now the mentality there was no plan b for my mate ad desperation desperation whereas my other mate came home for christmas and he was loving the fact that he was in the marines he was training like he was waltzing around went went home all the home comforts went back down to limpston and came back three weeks later and he was out. I think that's actually got a lot to do with my success in Australia because when I got there and I loved it, I was desperate not to leave. So I was like, I'm going to have to work hard here so I can establish myself and afford to be here. Then in my first year, 2017, when I had maybe 50, 60,000 followers, I then realized I had no visa options. So I took, I went through like a five-year visa battle and I knew one day my visa application would come across someone's desk in Australia and in my mind, I had to create a monster. I had to have something undeniable. Like imagine as a rugby player, you want to get picked for England or Scotland or whatever. You need to make sure that when your name gets put in front of that head coach, you are undeniably the person for that position. And the only way you can do that is to work harder than everyone else. That was always in my mind, the desperation to not have to go back. Because I've seen some of my friends move back to the UK and it's really like not been what they want. But interesting you say about the cadets, so I was four platoon ascot. <laughs> Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. <laughs> when, you put, when you put the Ascot at the end, it doesn't sound too edgy, I'll Mate, be honest. Our, our barracks was in the middle of Ascot Racecourse, mm. and we had a firing range in the middle of Ascot Racecourse. And I was there, I think 13 or 14 I started, got to Corporal. Uh, I've got shooting trophies from Arborfield. Lovely. Uh, there used to be, obviously, you had Arborfield. Um, I'm trying to think. I might have been to Aldershot. I remember at one place they had like an indoor firing range. Mm. I still remember the L98 AIGP cadet rifle, which was like an SA80 with an iron sight. A SA80, yeah, exactly. Fired the two two. I could take apart the L98 AIG because if I say SA80, the fucking the troops, it's not an SA80. Son. <laughs> I remember exactly where the pins were to take it apart, the coils, the springs. I remember doing it on my JNCO carder. I did it blindfolded. I took it apart, put it back together. You were never, if you could do that, you were never going to make it at the top level. I remember, uh, I remember even now cocking it back, thumb behind the iron sight, hand coming behind for the little pin that would hold it back, having to wave under the magazine chain. I remember it all. I loved it. And I was very much wanting to go into the military. But my dad uh, explicitly said, I want you to go in as an officer. He was like, I think we were just approaching Afghanistan war at this point as well. So he was like, I want you to go in as an officer. So I then looked to Welbeck College, where I interviewed for Welbeck College, but I just had no no grades. Mm. I had nothing at school. I was, if anything, in learning education. And then I had a, a, an issue when I was younger where, long story short, I accidentally shot someone with an air rifle. And yeah, 
And that's on the record, was it? Yeah. I was currently <laughs> reprimanded by the police uh, mm. for that. Although not convicted, not convicted, not convicted. Not guilty. It was an accident. I also had to tell fucking Australian immigration about that when I was doing my thing. But technically it's not on my record, but I was like, I'm not going to lie to these people. So I had to do like a written statement about everything that happened. It shit me up. But uh, that kind of derailed my application to join the military. And I went to college instead. But looking back now, that was like a bit of a blessing. I think that that's how bad I was as like a kid growing up. Even my parents were like, oh, you should go join the army because that's probably the only way you're going to make something of yourself because I just couldn't exist in, I had loads of energy. I was very disrupted. Uh, I actually learned a lot about discipline in the cadets. It was one of those places that I could actually hyper-focus. Like at school, they're like, oh, we're going to learn about Anne Boleyn. I'm like, I don't fucking care. Mm. Medicine through time, don't care. We're going to learn how to shoot someone from 400 meters away. Let me fucking get in. The smell of the, the sulfur in mm. the in the rounds. Don't call them bullets, they're rounds. You know what I mean? Like You can't call them bullets. I think that's what they call them in films. Okay. Rounds. Yeah, 30, round, 30 round mag. It's good in films. So like, um, for me, yeah, I, I love that stuff. But I think that you can romanticize the military. And I definitely did as a young person. In your mind, as like an 18 year old, you're like, go away with the boys. We'll go on tour to Afghanistan. We'll go to Iraq. We're like, we'll save the fucking country. We'll, we'll do it. But really, after talking to my friends that have served, it's not like that. And a lot of them have come back and struggled to find their place in reality. You know, like some of my friends came back after serving for 10 years and they just stood to attention in their front room thinking, mm. what do I do in my life? Yeah, I've seen it. It's like The Hurt Locker. It's a great movie that actually I think, speaking to my mates, and again, with a military background, is a great, the great scene where they're walking around, he's walking around the shopping, and he's looking at the cereal, he's looking at all the food, and it's just that, that kind of deafening silence. And when I ask my mates about it, not all of them speak about it, one in particular, he's like, the craziest thing about Afghanistan is that you're there, when you're in the war zone, you fucking don't see anyone. It's just like, sounds like fireworks. It's just you hear all these noises and there's people going down and you can't, you don't see anyone. It's like, it's not like how you think it's going to be that you're going to be having a fight or it's arm to arm combat. And it, him explaining it, which is an obvious thing, right? You think, okay, well, if they're miles away or hundreds of meters away and you're not seeing the enemy. And that's, I think, the Hollywood aspect of war and everything that you see and the reality, which is an obvious thing to say. But yeah, it's crazy when you think about You just that. hear a round rip through someone and drop, and you're like... Pshh. Yeah, like fireworks. Like I think, yeah, fire, that's what they say. It's, it's, it's like the firework thing. And my dad, I don't have a relationship with him at all now, which is a real shame. But I remember when I was a young lad... I don't know what your relationship was like with your dad, but again, without labouring the point, I had a troubled background growing up. And the biggest void for me was like, I needed my dad. My dad was like the the man in the army, in the special forces. He was everything, but he was vacant. He wasn't there. So I went through a troubled period at school where lashing out, physical. I'm sick. Imagine the state of me. I'm six foot six. Fucking clothes don't fit me. Hush puppies on. My toes are hanging out my shoes. Like getting bullied. I'm having to scrap all the time. But I wanted my dad. So I remember my dad coming back after the Gulf War, so end of 91, 92, and took me camping up in Scotland. We did the West Island Way, and we did it proper. So no hostels, no B&Bs. It was off the land. He's fucking killing rabbits for dinner, fishing in the like, old school. It was brilliant. But in the middle of the nights, he's screaming. I'm 10, 11 years old, and I'm in the tent, never been camping in my life. I'm with my dad, and he is up in the night screaming, Stand to! Stand to, 
fucking ripping the tent down, like running down the hill. And I'm literally stood there in my bloody hiking boots and my long johns. Like, what is it? Like, this is your dad. Comes around, puts it all like nothing happened. Off we go. The next day, day two, day three, every single night. As a young lad, I'm like, what the hell has he been through? I think now, understanding, not having a relationship with him, but speaking to people, me and Foxy have had some loose conversations, but obviously that's great that that's out there, showcase what they've been through, reading books. You can see why. In order to do that job right, if you're in the special force, or you're in the military, you're in the special forces, in the military, you're away, you're on the front line. It's the whole thing. If you've got a family at home, you're thinking about them constantly. You ain't on the job, are you? Like you're not. Your head's not in the game. At all, if you're thinking the whole time, oh, I've got... I wonder what my wife's doing. Yeah, exactly. I wonder what my son's doing. I wonder how he's getting on at school and my daughter. Nah, laser focus. My dad was in the military from 15, 16. So it's a tough... You talk about tough lives. That is... And again, that, yeah, back then as well. They must They must go, like you say, from... I remember, for me, <laughs> not comparing the two, I was in like Australia Friday night having food with my missus. Sunday morning, bang, I'm in the kitchen at my mum and dad's. I haven't been home for like six months. I'm having a cup of coffee and it feels like I didn't even leave. I'm like, oh, like, it's not like, oh, I haven't been here for six months. And then I'm like, I've got this weird distortion in my memory. I was like, has it been six months? And then I'm like, fucking hell. Friday night, I was at home. Sunday morning, I'm now at my mum and dad's. I was like, that went well quick. And I'm like, I woke up the next day and I was like, am I in Australia or am I in the UK? I was like, oh, I'm in the UK. Fuck, I'm like, obviously tired. But for these, these soldiers that have got to tour, like they might be in a firefight in fucking Baghdad. Two days later, their wife's like, well, what do you want for dinner then, darling? Mm. Oh, did you go to Aldi on the way back? And you're like, fuck, they must be, how can you distinguish the two? Because there's, there's such crazy environments to find yourself in. And then just, oh, go back to reality. Mm. It's, it, it's a crazy, like we, we, even you putting it like that. If people haven't watched The Hurt Locker, watch that. Because that's where I look at it. And that mundane life, which we have become accustomed to, or many people have, to having had them experiences mental. And a jarhead is a good one as well. Mm. But they're like, the red mist. Mm. It's like, it, it must be insane for people to put them under that much stress. Yeah, it's bonkers. Yeah, and you talk about athleticism as well, like what they have to go through. And, and that's why they say as well, like the best ones, are not all the time, are the ones from the street. So the ones that don't eat properly. There's, always, there's a thing as well, like a lot of them are Scottish, growing up on the streets of Glasgow. Shit weather conditions... <laughs> I'm not saying the water's not great, but maybe it's not great over in Glasgow. They're, they're pissing themselves as a sniper going, this is nice, this. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what as well, though. Props to, of course, the military. And the British military, in my eyes, has to be one of the best in the world, if not the best. Oh. And the Gurkhas as well. The Big Gurkhas. Fucking scary fuckers. Yeah. But um, uh, the police force here as well, right? Not talking shit about the Australian police force, but the British police force, I've always had like the utmost respect for. Every interaction I've had, with a copper in the UK has been just like brilliant. For, I remember getting, full, first time I got pulled over by the police for driving, knocks on my window. He goes, what have I pulled you over for, son? Like, oh, I was driving like a dickhead. He goes, what are you going to stop doing? I went driving like a dickhead. He's like, on your way. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah, I think, you know, although I've kind of abandoned Britain to go live this utopian life in, in Australia, I do miss the Brits when it mm. comes to, you know, British soldiers, British police, like, I just, I think they're the best. So when you do your stand-up, I call it stand-up. Is there a bit of comedy involved? I was yep. actually going to go and see one. You were up in Edinburgh last year. I couldn't couldn't come. It's like a TED Talk with fingering jokes. Okay, right. So like, imagine I could take like a really, for instance, I reference a concept called the utility of deprivation. What could you deprive yourself from to make you better? So the book was about confidence. And I talk about 
things you could deprive yourself from. So first of all, if you eradicate dating apps, which give you a very big comfort pile of warm deeds of people that you could meet with, if you deleted those, if you deprived yourself of those, there would be a utility to it because you now have to proactively talk to people, put yourself out there, ask people's numbers, give people your numbers. So if you're a walking, talking confidence project, which most people should, is there a utility to depriving yourself of a dating app to talk to strangers? Yes. So therefore you should do it. But before that, I'm like, the utility of deprivation, uh, why you should stop wanking before dates. And I, I take people on this story when I was like back at uni and I'm like, I arrange a date on a Friday night. I said, look, I'm not going on dates because I can't be fucked. But then I'm single and no man wants to be single. Everyone, you know, even the biggest players would quit the game for the right reason. And I talk about how the fact that every man, they have a date at 7 p.m., but they get a bit horny at 3 p.m. and they go, oh, I could have a wank. And then they go, oh, probably shouldn't. I'm going on a date later. And then you say to yourself, no, have a wank, have a clear head. <laughs> go on this date after having a wank. You're going to be there. She's going to go, I'm not sleeping with you tonight. And you're going to go, that's fine. But you can actually be honest and mean it. So I'm like, these are the things you tell yourself. And you're like, yeah, get out your laptop, draw your curtains, put a bit of blue tack on your webcam, fucking dig in for a good wank. But then I'm like, the second you jizz, you cancel the date. And you even think you're a stallion. You're like, I back myself up. Three hours, I've got enough time to turn around. But the second 3.30 comes around, three or four in my case, you're like, oh, I could just stay in and play Xbox. So I was like, is there a, is there a utility to depriving yourself of masturbation? Yes, you'll go on more dates. So like, I, I talk about something important, but then I go down a rabbit hole of something that's like under the bus, self-deprecating. Like, um, and in every live show, I have these like little tangents because educating someone is is one thing, but making it interesting and funny is the other. But then I'll try and bring it back into another important thing. Like uh, uh, I had many concepts in that kind of live show. One of them of which is talking about the origin of the word cunt because we called it the C word because we wanted like on posters and billboards, people go, the C word, you can't call it that. That's it's a great rude. word. The C word, but the C word being confidence. Mm. But then, although this is part of the show, I make it seem like, oh, we could talk. Do you know where the word cunt comes from? And I'm like, well, if we go back to 13th century linguistic journals, it's actually part of the anatomy of the human body. First use of the word is grope cunt lane, which was in London. And like, you know, you can go down this little like uh, road with it. And I'm like, prick was actually the name for the anatomy of the human male penis and cunt was the anatomy name of uh you know the vagina but then i go but then again technically you've got the vulva and the vagina and i was like if anything the word cunt is inclusive because it encompasses both parts you know like so then it seems like a, it's off cuff but it's all obviously pre-planned or whatever but yeah so it's about people coming along having a few drinks having a night out appreciating not everyone's going to read the book, not everyone's going to finish it. How can I get the most succinct points and make it funny at the same time? And we definitely have some fun with that. And do you know Kay Kurd? No. He's a, a British comedian. And he came to one of my events and he goes, bruv, do you know, yeah? Do you know? He's like, no one expects you to be funny. <laughs> he's a comedian. So he's <laughs> like, he's like, everything I say has to be funny, bruv. But like, you, no one expects you to be funny. And he's got a point and like, in the first book tour for not a diet book, uh, I did a, a piece on the menstrual cycle talking to men. And I'm like, okay, guys, yeah, you know, you seem to think that the period's a bad time. Let me tell you, the period's not the bad time. I was like, for a start, 30% heightened chance of a blowjob. Also, if you've got a stag do, you're much better telling your missus when the period's around than you are three days before the period. You know, like ovulation, I'm like, if your missus is hitting PRs in the gym, she could be hornier than usual. So if you'd like to do any freakish shit, now's your time of the month. But then I was like, 
However, she's fertile. So if you don't want kids, come on her, not in her. <laughs> Moving on. And then people are like, the women are like, oh yeah, that's actually true. The guys are there like fucking notepads out. Yeah, like, yeah. Ovulation, cool, okay. Two weeks later, be careful. PMS, dodging that. So if you can take something that is educative, but then also entertaining, you can kind of like, well, that's the point of difference. It's, it's well and good. What was the comedian's name K again? Curd. Yeah, Kay Curd. You're a comedian, right? But you're trying to educate as well as be funny with all the detail. Like as a comedian, and we do some stand-up gigs as well, it's easy to make mistakes and then you can almost self-deprecate when you obviously make a mistake or even that kind of dull silence can be funny in its own way. But if you're trying to educate as well, the, the amount of detail and prep and also, are you comfortable up there? Do you go up there? Are you like a sociopath? you just get up there or do you get yeah. nerves? Yeah, a bit. Like, um, I have to disassociate myself from some things. Like, the, even the, the social media following thing, like, I never for a second sit back and go, I've got a million followers. Like, to me, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's just a number. So I can do the same with the crowd. And Darren says this to me all the time. He goes, you never look at anyone. He goes, you look around, but you never look at anyone. Because if I look someone in the eyes, it's real. He goes, you haze out. He goes, he watches, he's seen so many live shows. He's like, I don't know how you do it, but you look at everyone, you look at no one. Mm. It's like being cross-eyed for the thing. It's like, it's it's weird, but I kind of like, uh, it, I don't really get nerves. All I all I want is for nothing to go wrong, like the microphone to not, to not fuck up mm. or the lights or whatever, or it not to be too hot or whatever it is. But the crazy thing was the first time we did the tours, we did like, I'd go to like Maidstone and there'd be 40 people in there. I remember the first time I used the word cunt, two of them left, <laughs> down to 38. Um, so we kind of done so many of these events in different places that now the pacing, the timing is a lot easier than it's ever been before. Uh, and also, John, the Hammersmith Apollo was fucking the, that one, I, like, I couldn't really talk to people for the day. I was like a bit on edge, like performance anxiety. And I didn't know my parents were going to be there. They'd never come to an event in my life. And my manager just before the show brings my parents in. He's like, they're going to be, I was like, fuck. Mm. My dad was like shaking. He was like, they didn't know, they don't really know what I do for a living. Well, it must have been unreal for them to yeah, say that. quite surreal. Mm. And then we, the event couldn't have gone better. And then after that, we did like, we did some really good shows. People are like, are you nervous for tonight? I'm like, it's not the fucking, it's not the Catalina wine mixer I just did a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> mate. I was like, even Auckland people, I was like, oh, it's only a thousand, you know, like. So after that, I feel like that's the pinnacle. I don't think I can ever beat Hammersmith Polo, parents' first fucking gig, three and a half thousand people. After that, I'm pretty relaxed. All the other gigs, even Sydney Opera House, I was like, oh, you know, yeah, it's a big, prestigious, amazing venue to be in. But Hammersmith Polo, that was like so difficult to just be calm for. Mm. This is the thing around what you do as well, a little bit what I do with the live shows. People are paying because they know what they're going to get. So it's the the comedian analogy is that you Ricky Gervais I'm laughing as he's walking on stage with his drink in hand do you know what I mean him. I love him like he that it was it was the BAFTA what was it what speech was it the, the Oscars Golden Globes or oh, was it Golden Globes oh the Golden Globes speech that is the greatest speech I've ever heard but they were probably different in terms of they weren't laughing as he walks up on stage but if you go and see Ricky Gervais or Jimmy Cut, whoever it is or the Ruby Pod People are laughing as Goody's waddling up on stage. So it's an easy sell. Have you done any before where someone said, oh, there's an after-dinner event, can you come and give a speech? And people are just looking at you like, what one, the hell? I had one at Sydney Uni where... Recently or not? No, nah, it was a couple of years, but no one no one came. And other people that came, it just bombed. All my jokes that usually... Mm. Like the fingering jokes just yeah. didn't land with a cold audience. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I remember looking at one of my mates. I was like, oh, fuck it. We just got to ride through it. But then at the same time, I was like, this will help me become yes. more resilient. Yes. There is a saying that being like comfortable being uncomfortable. And I've had a few of them as well. Or I've had, uh, we did an event once at Nottingham Football Club in one of their like, uh, I remember it was the only thing we could get in Nottingham. It was in like, it was actually in the stadium in like a conference room. And I remember doing it, but my manager couldn't make it. I think he was getting married or something. So it was pretty legit. And there was like a group of people at the front that just got obliterated. But to the point we didn't have security and to the point they're just like shouting yeah. over me. And it was like, and after that, I just texted him. How was the show? I was like, it's the worst night of my life. It was like the worst night ever. But I, I like those. And even, <laughs> even today, I can't explain this train I got into London today, right? I've never seen people crammed onto a train like it. And I was trying like a different train route and um, people were like squeezing on at a desperation. And I remember one woman's voice she was going, move up, please. And it was like, wow, she's she's probably worried about the implications turning up to work late. And like when we were, it took me 18 minutes to get my phone out my pocket. It was that tight. And then I was just there. I was like, how can I reframe this? Reframe this. I was like, this is helping you with your resilience. You know, <laughs> This is making you a calmer person. Like counting in, it was supposed to be a 19 minute train. It was 34 and like, yeah, so whenever anything goes bad or anything's like truly shit or I have to roll with Hodger Gracie, he's best of all time, 10-time world champion, worst times of my life rolling with him because he just puts me in the most excruciating positions and he doesn't just tap me. He holds me in positions where I can't breathe and I can't tap. And then Jim's, there's no tap you. And I'm just there trying to be like, this is making you a better person. Let him put you to sleep. No, have, no, you, he, have you been put to sleep or not? Has uh, he got yeah. you in a, a, a leg lock? He, or a... he puts me in something called a scaffold where he puts all his pressure onto my ribs oh, and pulls my head up. So I'm like... <gasps> can, can you black out like that or not? Not really. No. Oh gosh, it's just pain. It's just double whammy. I, um, I went to sleep in training the other the other week, but I didn't actually know I went to sleep. So I'm in a guy's closed guard. So I'm in between his legs. I'm on top of him. And he's got a cross collar choke on with the, with the gi. And to me, I'm like looking at the clock. I'm like 45 seconds. I'm like, I'm fine. So I'm just focusing. Some deep breaths, James, you'd be cool. And this Brazilian, he's like, what the fuck, man? I'm like, what? And he's like, I looked down this dribble at my mouth into his like rash guard. <laughs> so I kind of just like blacked out, dribbled on him. But when he let go, I didn't realize I'd been asleep. I'm like, what's, what's your problem? And then when he took his hands out my my collar, I was like, whoa. Then I was like, fuck, I felt like I'd done a balloon. But um, I put a lad to sleep in training the other week. And I, I haven't put anyone to sleep for like three years. And I put him in a pretty good guillotine. And he, I'm there not one part of my brain's thinking he's gone to sleep and i'm like why isn't this good team working so i shift my bum put my leg over and then i'm like oh fuck i'm, I'm this ain't wrong here and then just as i tighten it i hear him snoring so i let go he flops back on the mat and i'm shitting my pants because i'm like i could have held him in there for like mm. 45 seconds just readjusting this guillotine and they're rubbing his chest waking him up but people are fine when they wake up they say it feels nice right and i said this on a podcast the other day they're like, what, what do you mean it feels nice? I'm like, well, people wank with a belt around their neck. And they're like, what? What? <laughs> I'm like, asphyxiation wanking. They're like, and then I was like, fuck, have I just brought something up that people don't know about? Um, but yeah, by the end of the round, I was more shaken than he was. He was like, oh, bro, it's fine. I've just been asleep on brown belt. Me, I was like, I could have killed you. Yeah, but when I did a bit of jujitsu up at a guy called Rick Young up in Edinburgh, he is phenomenal. He goes to Vegas and does all these old boy events. You should look at look him Big up, up if you ever. Rick Young. Rick Young, I'm telling you now, he is phenomenal. He's quite famous on the the dark jujitsu circuit, I think. But when I went to his, there was women in the group as well. So you're having to roll effectively with women. Now, I'm a man-to-man. -man. 
in rugby the whole time. I've never wrestled or done jujitsu with a woman. But that's what you had to do. It was like nothing. You were just straight in, next partner, next partner. But the thing is, when you were with the women, you couldn't wrench out of any of the holds that you were in. So I'm getting tapped. Every single person, every woman that I'm in, and you're in these weird, like your head's in their crotch and stuff like that. I'm thinking, I could fucking rip a leg out here, but you can't. It's like, tap. It is. And my, my lad does jujitsu there. It's a leveler. Like, it really is. I know that you've mentioned one thing before about being a real man. What is it? You, you run 5K under half an hour. You can tap a man out on the street or, yeah. or a woman. Don't lift your body weight, squat your body weight. Yeah, yeah. I um, I had a lady called Fionn Davies on my podcast, and she's a, a Welsh jiu-jitsu black belt. And she's she's good. She's, like, champion of quite a few divisions. And I invite her on the podcast, so she comes to Roger Gracie's in uh, Hammersmith. And I partner up on her. Hey, do you want to partner up? She's coming on the podcast. She's probably... I could butcher this, maybe like 65, 70 kilograms. She's not a big person. And we get into like rolling, spiring rounds. And I was like, don't worry, I'm not going to be a dickhead. Like last thing I want to do is flipping land on a champion and break a wrist or whatever. She's like, no, no, don't call her a bum. Does this massive takedown on me. I like hit my head off the mat and I pause her for a second. I go, are you black belt in judo as well? She goes, yeah, I am. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, cool. To begin with, I was like, I'm not going to go crazy. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to try a bit harder. Mm. By the end of the round, I shit you not, I was fighting as hard as I could just not to tap her, to get a point on her. I couldn't get close. And I had never been so wrong about how good women can be in the sport. But to the point, it was Ingi, she got a grip on the back of my collar. She wouldn't let me sit up. Not even being nice. Not even like, oh, go and sit up and I'll fuck you up. I, I literally was like a turtle stuck on my back and she just tapped the fuck out of me. Crazy. And after that, I, it's quite worrying because I was like, I had the pre, pre incorrect idea that I could handle myself probably against, you know, someone who's 40 kilograms lighter than me. She kicked the daylights out of me and she probably wasn't even going that hard. Yeah. So Fionn Davies, weapon. Mental sport. Lovely person as well. I walked out and said I was a striker. That's how I left. Not to go back. I said, Rick, I'm a striker, mate. I'm out of here. I give the left, right, good night. No striking whatsoever. Um, just lastly, on the social media side of things, now you, we spoke about James Haskell. He's sold me up the river here, and I'm calling it. It might not have been him. It might have been Matt Dawson, but I think it was Hask. Oh, I haven't heard that name in a while. Matt, Matt Dawson. Dawson. Yeah, he's doing his thing on social media. There's a bit more coming through now under the radar. But I saw his social media explode. I was like, mate, how you got Instagram followers? He said, oh, speak to this guy. He's like, help, help a social media expert helps build your following. So I was like, right, great. Here's my Instagram account. Here's 700 quid. Next thing, loads of followers. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, as in post a picture, 4,000 likes. I was like, what the... Started looking into the insights and the algorithm. I'd acquired 15,000 social media followers from Indonesia. I mean, I know the big... Rub- <laughs> Are you saying husks buying followers? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. But I looked at the insights and I had 15,000 new rugby fans... Sitting in Indonesia. I have no legitimate? idea. No, they're not. Okay. No, because I've stopped paying the guy 750 quid or I've seen, whatever I've seen it was. this from some big accounts in London where mm. you can go on Social Blade and you can look at the peaks and troughs in people's followings. And when 10,000 come in a day, there's quite a nice round number. Mm. That's, come on, Hask, bro. I know, not, not necessarily Hask, but I'm looking at the engagement and the interaction mm. and the algorithms of social media and you'll know some of the stuff can go viral it's just a matter of timing of when you post when you look at how the social media thing goes like it is important right and i just wondered as a young man 
with kids one day on your what's your screen time for example because i do wonder when i see you on social i'm on social media a lot i have a look now i'm looked these are the kind of things i don't look at oh when gosh I can. should we have a look at the uh daily average four hours 54 I, I can't even say mine i should just have a look uh that could be different to normal is that daily oh no daily average six and a half hours same as me see no. that perfect balance 634 632 yes says we're formal I, but we're here to party this is probably my best advice on social media where most people blame the algorithms it's not the algorithms it's the content if you think the algorithm's giving you a tough time you just need to make better content mm. because every algorithm on every social media platform is designed to get you a billion views and it will give you a billion views if you make the content good enough because every social media platform is fighting to keep people on their platform and how do you keep people on your platform you serve them good content mm. so a real hard pill for me to swallow in the last year or so was is it an algorithmic turndown are these golden eras is it the time you post or is it you just not me saying you but is it me putting out subpar content so you know the social media platforms want you to reach everyone if you don't make the video good enough why would they put yours before someone else's yeah it's really I mean, again i put it on that i'm not I say I'm not big on it. I'm on my phone six and a half hours a day. <laughs> but if, if you had a, a regular nine to five or they'd given you a job in the city, even if you got in at nine and left at half three or half four, same amount of time, you just would have done it behind a computer pretending you're reading emails. There you go. That's it. I'm looking at news. I'm listening to podcasts on here. So it's you're not going to get a million work. dollar idea, you know, looking at a newspaper. Are you? you know, have a look at your insights and see where they are and see if you, this is when you'll know and you'll know if people have been playing funny buggers with you. Do you know how to do it? Have a look at your where people are uh yeah i can't believe it now but I've, I've never done any of this skullduggery before you you're slyly right jesus christ i gained followers this week although yesterday i lost 83 what did i do how'd yesterday? you do that how'd you do that on the followers bit okay so i go into my followers mm -hmm. there countries so what did i do no what did i do on may may 9 may 15 what did i do to lose followers because i know i lost a lot of followers last night dropping a non-binary program but um but I thought that that's what your followers would want, wouldn't they? That's the stuff they need. Not all of them, but you got to do a purge once in a while. Yeah. you got to, you know, get a few of the... I've had a spike in my social media because I did a video... Just wait till I tag you after this. No, I'm joking, yeah. I'm joking. I'm looking forward to it. I did a video with Craig Doyle, who's a presenter for rugby, and we spoke about the Isle of Man TT. Mate, it's done 20 million views. Fuck off. 20 million views across all the social media. It has gone... Berserk. You're in the wrong industry talking about pods. Well, yeah, I'm. Um, this I'm, was life or death. I'm UK 50%, Australia 15, United States 8.4, then Ireland and Canada. Oh, I see. <laughs> Go tell me your countries. Uh, UK number one, 51%. Um, okay. It's only, uh, what's that, nearly 600,000. Yeah, it's a lot of people. <laughs> Caught following. You're not joking. The it's crazy legit. thing, this was the fucked up thing, right? The other day, um, my story views were like uh, 160,000, right? And I'm thinking, 106,000, that's quite cool. That's two Twickenham stadiums. Yes, when you think about it like that. If you said, James, going to Twickenham Stadium, microphone, I'd be shit in my pants. Mm. Yet, for a story, I can do two Twickenhams. Then that shows the power of it. Let's carry on going through. So the UK, I am 40.6%. What's your next one? Australia, 15.4. <sighs> Mine's India. <laughs> 25. Really? <laughs> I thought it was Indonesia. India? But they love rugby in India. Oh, yeah. Clearly. United States, six percent, eight point four. Ireland, five point six. I've got three, and then Canada, two and a half percent. Yeah, I've got Brazil, which is a small one. I don't know. That might be part of the board. Right, got an age range. Oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah mine's warped though, isn't it? Because these Indian rugby fans, 
18 to 24, 9%. 18 to 24, 31%. Oh, you got a young audience. 25 mm. to 34, 46.2. 30%. Uh, 35 to 44, 31%. That's big. And then That's people who want to better their lives. That's why. That's that age. 25 to 44 is the big, big. Yeah. That's the moneymaker though, isn't it? Yeah. And then, you know, my 13 to 17 is 0.4%. It's like not even, but that's quite good because I'm not selling prime. Mine's 7.5%, but I'm sure that's the majority of Indian fans <laughs> who are trying to get into rugby because it's an emerging market. And then 45 to 54, 10%. And then 55, 64, 2%. And then 65.6. All right. And then what about the gender? Yours will be split a bit. A lot of women like you. 62% women. It used to be 80% women. 62% women. Mostly women, yeah. And that's coming down. It used to be about 80% women. At my events, we used to have to take the men's toilets and put a woman's sign on it. Because I shit you not, we'd have 90% women at the events. Look at you. Man, so I'm a man's man. I'm, eight, I'm 86% men. That's the rugby thing though, isn't it? Yeah, and this it is. is what I was saying to someone else the other day. I was like, if I played for England rugby, it would just be 17-year-old lads recognising me. Yeah. Like, you can imagine, this is, all right, so look at this. Majority women, main age range 25 to 34. Can you imagine what that's like? Being a single man, tough. No, I couldn't. <laughs> no, very tough. The sought after man. How, like, how do you deal with, like, do you, I mean. In my late 20s, uh, it, do you know what? It, it was fun for a bit. Yeah. And then after a while, I, I came to the conclusion, I can't keep doing this. Can't like, do it, keep doing what? Shagging. Interacting. Shagging. Yeah. Because it's, I always think what's congruent with the good life. And I was like, this isn't good for me anymore. Like when, when it started to like take off a bit and anyone out there aspiring in the world, 100k is your, your golden era because you're not big enough for someone to set up a secret webcam and sell your video to the sun but they're big enough to slide in when you get to a million followers there's there's people out there trying to trip you up and i never really you create like trust issues someone's always out there to get you mm. or to capture you saying something inappropriate or something you know so then it got to the point where i enjoyed myself in my late 20s enjoyed all the spoils that came with being well known but then when it got to the point of just getting a bit silly, I was like, that's it. I need to get a dog, get a serious relationship, move down by the beach and start to slow down a bit. And are you happier in that space? Yeah, yeah less anxiety. Mm. Like uh, going out, the, going out, you can't do it too much. And as a single, single men, this is an interesting one, right? Single men go out a lot because that's where they think they, they'll meet women. They often will meet women because women, there's, there's a cohort of people that just want to get smashed and fuck strangers. But you never find you never find your wife on a dance floor at 3am. Very true. I was thinking to when I find my wife. No, it wasn't. It was by a cigarette machine. And it was at 10 o'clock. Exactly. And I was smoking. She wasn't. Nothing good after one. That's, that's what, I what they say. I added 12. Nothing good happens after midnight. Just in general. Okay, yeah. Nothing good after 12. Yeah. I have to copyright that. And then long term, do you know, it's, it's almost like we're going through, like, this is your life. Like, uh, well, just play it by ear. I mean, everything, I always have these like marginal gains. So i uh, got a product coming out with Chris Williamson. Keep growing the socials. Um, I would like to uh, get my brown belt in jiu-jitsu. I would like to maybe build my YouTube following a bit. But yeah, just taking it easy. I've got like a, th this is the crazy thing I always have to remind myself of. When you get to a certain point in life, so many things stay the same. So I said this to someone in a cab yesterday. I was like, if, if I gave you a fucking hundred million pounds, your net worth you'd use the same iphone you'd probably watch the same programs on netflix still you pay the same subscription you would sit in the same traffic just in a nicer car your flight time in first class you get more room but it's still the same flight time still have to go through you know unless you go private but 
anything like that. So many things in your life are the same. Some things are different, but not everything. So, so many people give up so many things in their life, aspiring for this life that's ahead of them. But my life's really good now. So I just need to be congruent with the habits that give me that, maintain them. And, you know, I'm not really the biggest fan of big goals. What can I progress on? Even if something's going to take me five years, let's say a million followers on YouTube. Someone said, oh, it's going to take five years. Cool. And I'll enjoy the next mm. five years trying to do it. Well, mate, you're smashing it from Thank you. where I'm looking. I've really enjoyed watching the content and having you in. So at the moment, you're in the UK and to the millions of followers, albeit in India, you've got a live tour. Is there something happening while you're here or are you planning some stuff in the future? Uh, not really. Just if, I, if anyone was listening, they're like, oh, this guy's a not legend. As, not as much of a prick as I thought. <laughs> I'll just say, follow on whatever platform you like and just try and enjoy the content. I don't want anything from you. But in a few months, I might. And then rugby. Just give me a, a quick line on that. Who do you support? Who's your team? Well, you know, I used to be a wasp fan. What? Yeah, no. Used to be, as used in because be. they've gone now, that's why, or just because you've yeah, worn out they, of love of club you know, rugby. Made Ned, we're a feed. We mm. weren't really a feed, but you know, we're a feed to yeah. wasps. Uh, obviously, England, you know, still got my heart, still bleed white. Um, what else do you want to know? Do you want to come to the World Cup? Sort you out. Not What's your mate's name again? Darren. No, he Fuck ain't coming. He Fuck ain't him. coming. Uh, where is the next World Cup? It's in France. Oh, bonjour. Yeah. Parlez français. Oui, ça va. Mon um, ami, when, when is it? It is in. October. Yeah, if there's if there's anything available, I'll bring my dad. Bring your dad. So I took him, I chaperoned him to uh, Twickenham uh, a couple of years ago. And when I left, and my dad kind of said to me, he goes, I think that might be the last rugby game we'll ever go to. And I was like, oh, because it was like, it was busy as we're leaving. Like people are like kind of barging a bit to get out. He's a little bit older. Mm. He's like 71 now. And like that kind of stung a bit. I was like, oh my God, was that the last rugby game which went to with my dad? So maybe if we do that, that can be it. It is. It's in September, October. Oh, I'm back in September. So whichever one you want. Cool, yeah. Come, it'll be class. Yeah, nice. Maybe not England though. They might struggle this year. Yeah, Scotland are getting pretty good. Yes. They've been on the secret sauce for a while now. Yes, we have. I, <laughs> I put the foundations in. Well, the Tremblone. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. This is our one chance. Mate, 10 years ago, Scotland all turned up fucking 10 kilograms heavier. Right, unless it was either creatine, trembolone, or something. That was me. I was in that because everyone was talking about it. It was 2007. Massive. That, that was out and out, bicep curls and creatine. Can you take creatine now or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know because there was a thing after where we were taking it. It was like, literally, I am... And you had Russia, you had the Icarus blood dopers in there. <laughs> it didn't help because we barely beat Romania in that tour. So. Yeah, but they're on the sauce as well. Romania. Yeah. Oh, the Eastern Europeans. Anyone that's bigger than me is on the sauce. Wow. That'd be, I thought you'd be bigger, I'll be honest. Oh, you but you're strong and you're fast. Strong, strong-minded, not fast. Mate, you've got a very quick mind. So we should hopefully do this again. Mm. I'm going to get rid of these Indian followers. I don't know how. I'm going to have to employ someone to get rid of it because I've, I've done myself up the river here, haven't I? Because people are like, I'm a fake. But I've opened it up and said... You've done the Eminem 8 Mile. You've got ahead of him. Now tell these people something they don't know about me. Exactly. He's, how good is he? He's old mm. now, a lot older. Mm. But do you like Eminem? Yeah. I love him. Be, never heard about him on a podcast if you had hundreds of millions would you want to talk imagine him coming in and just like rapping you hear these other podcasts where the musicians go and they just start pulling out the guitar imagine Eminem sat here and he's just spitting out he would have been good Superman on the, imagine if he had TikTok back yeah. in the day that was his way yeah God bless. I'm going to watch 8 more absolute classic let's go and do it James class mate thank you so much thank you so much cheers mate, mate.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.